0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. After Emmanuel Macron's victory over Marine Le Pen, has he successfully crushed populism in France? And can he unite the country? To discuss the state of French politics and society, I'm joined by the commentator and journalist Anne-Elizabeth Moutet is populism a dying force in France
1: I would say no uh, I would say we have different brands of populism in France actually we you could say that we have three different groups of populists because when Emmanuel Macron was elected for the first time 5 years ago he was an unknown who created a party in his image. It even had his initials, E.M. for En Marche. Uh, he was unknown. He uh, uh, was disliked by all the incumbents. His line was essentially get the impu- uh, you know kick the incumbents out, and he got the vote of people who wanted to vote for someone that looked reasonable because the French are risk averse, but who would boot out the previous lot. So it was a sort of mild populist vote. And then you've got the populist vote. On the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's an unregenerated Marxist and who is talking for uh, ethnic minorities. He's talking for the working class and the not working class. He's talking for uh, uh, the young people who have Possibly diplomas, but who uh, can't find jobs because the uh, the French economy is is too rigid, more than uh, and uh, even probably now contracting. And therefore, uh, he's also he's he he appeals to a populist vote, and he is an extreme. His is an extremist party. And finally, you've got Marine Le Pen, and she has won against. Uh, competitors, to sort of capture the vote of the people who vote for the extreme right because they're tired of the uh, of the establishment. And she uses the word establishment. And her father used to say l'establishment. So it's it's been for a long time. And again, it's a party that's in the image of their leader, a family. Uh, and so we've got we've got extreme right populist, we've got extreme left populist, and we've got one centrist populist, who is Emmanuel Macron.
0: So what's happened to the traditional establishment parties?
1: The establishment parties have Self-destructed, but they were very much aided and vetted in that by Emmanuel Macron, because when he came five years ago, he'd been he'd not been in politics. He's a he's a Mandarin. He's mostly a top civil servant. Uh, he worked for a bank, but the idea that he's a technical banker, no, he was uh, being on the top of the French civil service. He was exactly the kind of type to advise a bank on how to do a deal that would be. Uh, favored by the French Treasury and but you know, oil the wheels, so he was basically a luxury pilot fish, and they paid him very well to be uh, a, a pilot fish, and then he had money to go on a political career. And in uh, in in his view of politics is you know I start at the top. He was a uh, deputy chief of staff of the Elysee and then he became the economy minister because the previous one resigned. Uh, he lasted all of two years. He promised to the president that named him there. He, you don't have to be an MP in France to be in the house. Uh, he said I'll never run against you and of course he did. That was Francois Hollande and he won and he won because nobody knew who he was but he looked sort of you know he was incandescent when he spoke and and he was you you just had to look at the faces of all the other candidates and and people said yeah they don't like him.
0: So you mentioned Hollande who is the president relatively recently of the Socialist Party. Now the socialist candidate in this recent election she got around 1.7% of the vote. Now that is a historic collapse from the presidency to basically financial ruin and the same thing has happened to those Republicans, uh, the, the former sort of Gaulist Party. Why have these you know, specifically these two parties done so badly.
1: To some extent, when Macron came in, in in 2017, he decided that he could be all things to all men, and so he called his his movement was en marche, and his line was en même temps. I can I can be both on the left and on the right. I can. Cherry pick policies from the, rest, from, the right. from the left and from the right. I can cherry pick politicians from the left and from the right. He shaved off compatible personalities, and by which the, uh, I mean he shaved off people who would not oppose him. He found I would say, lackluster politicians on both sides. But it was enough to sort of destroy the fabric of both traditional parties that had not been doing well. I'm not sure you can do this to a successful party. But those parties were not doing well. François Hollande was so unpopular that at the end, he did not run against uh, Emmanuel Macron, and, and the other candidates lost. Uh, so. Um, there were you. You had parties that were tied, but you can river, r- revive a party. I mean, it's happened to Labour and and and, and uh, Tories in Britain many times. Uh, and you know, from from the the last uh, the late 70s to Tony Blair, people didn't think Labour. Or people thought Labour would always be there, which is you know part of it. You've got to believe in it. But those parties had become so in undistinguishable in terms of social democracy or a little bit liberal democracy. But it was. Essentially, the same animal. So Macron took them, and then the extremes uh, gained, and he opened uh, a boulevard to uh, uh, the extremes. Partly because he knew he would always win a presidential election against them, so he favoured them. He he uh, mentioned them. He uh, encouraged his pet journalists to go and interview them. He they got prominence, but you know it was also that they were the, there. Was an angry vote. The angry vote was. Faced with traditional parties that looked like they were despising them, and and so they jumped to the extremes. And Macron's strategy from day one was to to have Marine Le Pen against him again because the last time it was so decisive. Uh, this time he was scared for a few weeks because she looked like you know there was a possibility. But in the end, people thought we are and probably the, the Ukraine crisis changed it. But people thought in a dangerous world where inflation is going to be built in because of the cost of living is going to be a disaster because of energy crisis and that's what happens with the Russian war. That changes things and they wanted someone who looked safe and the incumbent is safe.
0: Now there is a temptation in Britain to view Macron's re-election as a victory for his ideals of globalization, of pro-EU support in France against this awful far-right, uh, Marine Le Pen candidate. Do you think we can view this election uh, through that lens of this being a victory for those ideals or was it more about trying to rem- you know, keep Marine Le Pen out of power?
1: I think it was mostly to keep Marine Le Pen out of power. Uh, I wouldn't say so much that sort of globalization is an ideal. Uh, it's a situation and people sort of think this is the way it's going to work and so it's more something that has been structured in by the, 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 the bureaucracy and the technocracy and it's and because the EU has been good for France overall. Uh, the French got good things out of the EU and when they didn't look good sometimes in, especially with farming policy or look at fishing policy you know essentially sort of we, we battle it until it gets better for us uh, in complete bad faith. And and, uh, 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 once we sign this treaty, it's entirely possible that we will discuss the clauses forever afterwards. Uh, So the idea
0: say sorry to interrupt, but look at two examples for globalization being an ideal. You could say that this is people who are. Pro mass immigration. These are people who are pro free trade. They're pro the trends, the social trends that have resulted in the last twenty years of massive, you know, increase in globalization throughout the world. So that's what I, I suppose that that's what I meant by those ideals.
1: In terms of massive globalization, you've got the people who realise some of the consequences of the globalization, and you've got a part of the French who do. Uh, they realized that essentially uh, 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 unchecked immigration has made that French workers are not competitive anymore. Uh, uh, they, they, they require more money, more salaries than, than, than immigrants will come and do just about anything, especially the illegal ones. Uh, so that's that's a problem. It's been it's been globalization. Uh, I don't think there are many people. They, they, everybody talks about reindustrialization. Trump did. The French left and right talk about reindustrialization. They realize the uh, the sort of social catastrophe in small sort of mid-sized towns in in all France where companies were building stuff that Chinese the Chinese can build for uh, you know ten times as little. Uh, so that's that's something that can't be changed. But they are thinking: is why? How do we do? How do we come? Like the Germans, how, uh, the, how do we have a Mittelstand? How do we have companies that are sort of mid sized, smaller mid sized, and they do something which is of such technical excellence uh, or mechanical excellence? How do we do that and, and, and sort of maintain employment in a way that, that we seem not to be able to? But that's, that's broader. So that has been felt. Immigration is comprised of two different things because I, I know that in Britain it's always surprised the French you had immigration from Eastern Europe and people became pretty touchy about immigration from eastern europe and the reaction of the French is, you know, what are you complaining about? They send the kids to school. Uh, they're hardworking. Uh, they, you know, they don't riot. Uh, you don't. It have was about pro-
0: wages, wasn't it? In Britain, it was
1: about wages. So I can see. But in France, it's also been obscured in some way because of the cultural aspect of uh, a part of immigration, who are people who come from the third world. They arrive in France. They're not used to a third world society, and you've got clashes, which are cultural clashes. Uh, and uh, you've got people who live in Paris in uh, small, like Nightbridge, the equivalent of Nightbridge and they don't see them except when they're sort of bringing them packages from Amazon and they have no problems with them. So and France when you live next really door, it's different.
0: France has real, really failed to integrate compared to Britain in some senses.
1: It is true because for instance, take the Asian immigrants in, in, in Britain, they are not only well integrated, but also they have higher salaries than And, and, and the, uh, on average, they, make, you know, they have better lives than, uh, than the poor whites in Britain. Uh, which is also an interesting question, but it's in France we don't have it doesn't they they don't come from the same places they don't have uh, this idea that there's a sort of link cultural link to France. Uh, it's It's been an unhappy immigration in some ways. And France has always been a country of immigration since the, the 17th century. It was the most people country in Europe in the 17th century. We have had Italian immigrants. We've got cabinet ministers in the 17th century who were Italian. We've had Poles, same thing, cabinet ministers and generals. Uh, we, we've had Russians at the time of the revolution and before the revolution. We've had Jews. We've had all sorts of people coming into France, and they integrated very well. And if you take. Uh, uh, Asterix, you know, the Asterix de Gaulle, the comic strip. Asterix de Gaulle, which is about the quintessential Gaul, which is a, a nice sort of friendly riff on, on the French, it created by th- the Sons of Immigrants. Uh, Albert Ruderzo's father was a, a stonemason who came from Italy, and um, René Goscinny, uh, Polish Jews who uh, passed through Argentina, and he came to France afterwards. And so they are people who look at France in a sort of starry-eyed, uh, love and they wanted to integrate and there's a, there's been a breakdown you can say that the French did not find the way for instance that Germans are doing now since 2015 of setting up instead of thinking well you know the French, school system will integrate children it's a question of numbers whereas the germans have got special things special uh, language courses special civilization courses we we've not faced up to what it meant because we believe that we could do what we had been doing before and that's that's sad and that's our fault
0: and this has been a problem in france for decades right this lack of integration and you know the moods against Uh, mass immigration, particularly from Islamic countries, has been going on for a long time. Just look in 2002 to Marine Le Pen's father. He won 18% of the vote, obviously got absolutely trounced by his opponent in in the presidential election, but he still got into that second round. But I suppose I want to come back to that original question, and you can comment on that if you'd like. But whether The Guardian... Uh, is correct in viewing this election as a win for those ideals of globalisation. Do you think that this was how we should view, um, you know, is this, are these ideals winning in France?
1: I don't think they are, I think. And, and um, I can see why people would be terribly impacted by globalisation and not like it. And it is understandable and it should be addressed. At the same time, there's an old-fashioned uh, sort of uh, French uh, uh, strain of thought that dislike f- uh, sort of foreign ideas that dislikes lib- free trade that dislikes a number of things that believes in a society which was essentially the ancien regime you know with the church and the country and 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 the, it, that's been revived as well and it's not been ex- explicitly revived except by some extreme candidates but it's there's a feeling that uh, some of this freedom is too much freedom, and it's 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 a very old thing. So it's more complicated than that. I don't think it's an ideal. I think as long as people benefit from globalization, and suddenly instead of paying, uh, uh, you know, one third of their salary for their clothes and their kids' clothes, uh, they pay peanuts uh, in in sort of chains that have stuff. Made uh, uh, at the other end of the world, and they, they they see okay they note that this is much less expensive than it used to cost, but they look at the cost of other things that go up, and they say that's not working, and they're only seeing one side. Uh, but there's also a fear of the unknown, uh, 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 which so it, it's it's complicated. What's certain is that people voted this time uh, against Marine Le Pen because they saw her as being backwards-looking, as being reactionary, as um, uh, you know she carries the burden of her name she carries the burden of the fa- her father's policies her father was a racist her father was an anti-semite I don't think she is she was born in 1968 she does not care uh, she's got you know uh, typical thing she's she's got Jewish and Arab friends she's got people in the party who are Jewish and Arab uh, and that's not her problem at all uh, she believes in, in in the north side of France but uh, Unfairly, she's been called racist, but certainly fairly, she's been called uh, somebody who's backward-looking, who is unable to align herself to people. So that how she was unable last week, just before the election, she was unable to give names of her future cabinet, for instance, because there were she was hoping essentially that once she'd won, she would she could she could do a Macron, but bef- after the election, not before, and find compatible personalities, and she's unable to align herself to other hard right voters. Uh, so. She is, she's she's ring-fenced and she has ring-fenced herself uh, and and that was the end of it.
0: But the Le Pen family speak to a longer history of French politics and her father has been around for a long time, Uh, you know, and and we've seen this trend of him getting 18% in 2002 Marine Le Pen getting 33% in 2017 and obviously 42% in this most recent election in 2022. Now, to British viewers, they'll be heavily relieved, I'm sure, to know that Macron cannot run for a third term. (laughs) So can we see a Marine Le Pen rising again from the ashes of this defeat? She
1: will try and it's perfect yes exactly it's a beautiful progression her own father who's really been sort of you know, has cut her at knees time and time again said was he said this is admirable i wasn't able i would never have been able to achieve that she's a great progression and he said that but uh i see i see you know a, a hard wall uh and in, in her running it entirely depends how the French right reorganizes itself because there are people within the Republican Party and with the partisans of Éric Zemmour, including Zemmour himself, who have theorized a new way of having a hard right in France, and, and which is sort of less hard and, and you know, capable of governing and and one of the reasons where it's something that's been embodied by Eric Zemmour even though after good polls he went down to 7% was that because he himself is a political journalist was for 30 years he knows everyone people you know it, it, there isn't the wall that there is Marine Le Pen sort of different person he is he's one of them in so many ways even though he was a, an anti-establishment candidate and he managed to get people out of the Republican Party just for his, his run, which was almost a single issue run on immigration, so not the easiest issue. Um, and what's really sort of theorized right now is in 2027, there should be a candidate co- that come, who comes from Les Républicains. About one third of Les Républicains w- did not call to vote against Marine Le Pen, did not call to vote for Macron. They are the people who can going sort to of split themselves from a party that's ailing anyway. And then they will join something broader, that would be a coalition with a new new Repub- Republican, however they call themselves, with Reconquête, which is the Zemmour party, with smaller parties, and then call up other people in the country who, and telling them, look, we need to have a party that talks to the French, that talks to the French people, and that gets somewhere, and not a wishy-washy centrist thing that does not win elections because it has not, no personality. And that's possible.
0: So Marine Le Pen, she has this what you call a wall or perhaps a ceiling yeah. because of the baggage that she holds with her name, because of her father, and perhaps even because she's viewed by too many people as being a sort of low status person to vote for. Uh, whereas but also, but
1: also because she's incompetent. Uh, it's a party that's run. It's a family concern. The, uh, the uh, 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 Front National, Rassemblement National, all the names that they have. And, and when you when you look, they have few MPs, and the French uh, system of a majority in two rounds mean that it's you know it's skewed against them. But they also have uh, they have no allies. They, they there's bitter infighting, and nepotism in in their regional uh, uh, sort of constituencies. Uh, it's not they they don't know how to organise when you're a party. They're not professional in the way that they ought to be organising themselves. And in that respect, uh, people feel it. It's it's they are. Um, it's it's really, I mean, it's something that belongs to a very old tradition in French politics. He, the father, he never wanted to be elected. He wanted to be a provocateur, and he was enjoying it immensely and sometimes perversely.
0: And it hugely shocked the French, and the world indeed, when he won 18% of that vote in 2002. Uh, So you remember, this must have been a huge, uh, (laughs) you know, excitement for many, but obviously very worrying times for, 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 for others. And this year, Marine Le Pen, his his daughter, won 42%, and I want to talk about the people who voted for her. Now, can we lump those voters into the same trends that we've seen in Britain and in America uh, for Trump and for Brexit, this sort of the winds of anti-globalisation, or Is it more about this long French tradition of the Le Pen family and of rebelling against the incumbent and all these things? So can you link this in with a a bit of French history, or is this more contemporary issues, uh, as we've seen in America and in Britain?
1: It's all of that. It's all of that because life is complicated. it's uh, you have all sorts of sort of different traditions. You've got you know hardline Catholics, for instance. You've got traditionalists. You've got uh, uh, people in the Rust Belt who voted for her. You've got lots of young people who voted for her, and they are young people like there are in Britain and there are in America. They are not in big cities. If they can't own their homes because property has gone up, or if they can actually own their home, it's because it's so depressed that it's unsaleable anywhere else, so they can't move. Uh, Many of them were not born in 2002 when the father ran. And and so you've got this sort of mix of uh, and flammable mix of people who were also with the yellow vests in the in the streets of France. Um, and yes, this is how populist parties build up. I'm pretty sure that if you take the initial fascist party, and I'm not saying that Marine Le Pen is a fascist, but you know, it's, it's, you had lots of people who were going through a depression having been on the right side of the, uh, the side of the winners of the First World War in Italy. And in the 20s, they were going through a depression. And, and the country had sort of, uh, uh, there, there was a general feeling that the, the uh, uh, what was the point of all that? And there's a sort of feeling, what's the point of all this? What's the point of the president we've had in, in, in France all this time? And, and uh, even though. Macron boasts and he's right that he's created more jobs than previous president and that unemployment, however you count it, is lower than it used to be. It still is higher than in most other European countries. Certainly is higher than unemployment in, 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 in Britain. So and there's also a feeling in France that you, you know, nobody is going to sort of try somebody and see try or try something. Uh, you know, whether it's a sort of commercial practice or whether it's a sort of different way of looking at things. It's a very conservative party in w- uh, country in way uh, that it 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 works. Um, the uh, so uh, you, you, you asked me earlier on, uh, why do young people come to Britain? I mean, I was a young person who came to Britain to work for another newspaper years ago. And the reason why in in the French press, they wouldn't even let you sign something if they ever sort of asked for stuff from you. and, the people who were there had been there forever. Uh, and I came to Britain, and I found myself uh, with Andrew Neil, who was young at the time as my editor. And I was the lowest form of animal life on the newspaper that I was at, where I was the business stringer in Paris. And I worked for a French newspaper at the time, but you know, I started writing for that, uh, uh, that other paper. And uh, I remember Andrew coming to me when I was visiting in London and saying, what do you think of this? And I said, hmm, yeah. And he said, uh, do you think that, you know, can we do a piece about this? And I said, yes, I think so. He said, OK, we'll do it. I'd never had a boss in France that have a come to me as a sort of 22-year-old, uh, sort of from a foreign country, sort of you know doing something arcane. And there's this sort of, uh, hey, let's try this. If it doesn't work, we'll do something else. That's not French. And France, it's also very costly in France, because, hiring people just to see whether it works you know the employment law and protection of workers even though it's been lowered is still so expensive that you wait forever before you hire people and people feel understandably resentful that you won't hire them for so long and then they devise a sort of series of sort of temporary contracts so that people would be able to try people out and because other people are sort of stuck in their jobs but are immensely uh, expensive to fire, uh, the result is that those people who are in those temporary contracts, which is just what you get in any any anything in Britain, they feel resentful. So you've got they have a, there's a feeling of two classes just because the whole standard is a standard of immobility. Um, we are the country. I think we are now the country in the world that spends the most uh, um, of its budget and in for of the state. Uh, but public expense is the is the biggest. I think it's it's. Um, 57% or something is huge. So this is a hidebound country that has protected its population for a long time. And as long as the French were young immediately after the war, the whole new uh, social welfare system, which is the same thing as beverage in Britain, was something that was working out very generous. And, and everybody was happy in any way you had a country to reconstruct, and the country was you know three percent growth annually, five percent growth annually, and re- rebuilding itself and rebuilding itself better than Britain at the same time, you know all the trains, all those things. But we now have a sort of halo of memory in which we think we can have this back, and it's not going to happen. it's finished, and um, this is where the sense the the feeling of unhappiness that the French are so famous for, uh, apparently people in Ethiopia are happier than the French. they say that their lot is better than the French, and you know it, they they're more optimistic about the future than the French, which when we think about this is pretty scary uh and that sort of that shapes our, our political life in in a huge way. I don't know, you know, how far you want you want to go with this, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's a very it's a very conservative country in ways that they don't describe themselves as conservative. But our leftists are very conservative. They want everybody to keep their job forever. Uh, they want protection to work forever. They want companies to produce the same wages forever. Um, and and you, the France would should be able to find a middle way to sort of between. Uh, essentially, a, a command economy that works and Thatcherism, but we're unable to do it. And Macron's idea was to go and say, We're going to be la startup nation. Uh, and, you know, we're going to build, it. literally, he said, we're going to have 20 unicorns by the year 2040. And you think, it's not the government that creates unicorns, uh, uh, have high-tech companies that have more than a billion sales. Uh, you know, it's, it comes from the grassroots, but the grassroots in France are looked down, and the, the, these are people who are not within the, the structure. So it's, it's a different country.
0: <laughs> in France, if Marine Le Pen had won, and you call Emmanuel Macron a centrist populist in any case, so let's say that a, you know, a right-wing populist had won the 2022 election, would that have ultimately mattered because in britain you had brexit and in trump in america you had trump and there are people that argue on the right that The establishment is controlled by the liberal metropolitan elites and that these political elections had real uh, you know the real consequences of those elections were not necessarily felt because the civil service the big businesses the big charities all of these organizations big tech were still sort of run by the same people and the similar liberal metropolitan elites now in France you've had this election of Emmanuel Macron the centrist populist as you could you describe him but does that matter? Does that politically matter? We see all this chaos because the civil service and all these other institutions are still run by these similar types of people.
1: Well, um, certainly she would have come against a brick wall from uh, the civil service. And she also would have come against a brick wall in Brussels. And France would have been a pariah state in ways that are interesting to imagine. And I'm not sure if she had the capacity I mean, take someone like Viktor Orban, who is a sort of uh, you know massive personality, very intelligent, uh, theorizes things. And, and he theorized the, the clash with Brussels in many ways. And It's a small country, Hungary. It's 10 million inhabitants. It's very different in France. So her idea, but it was a bit ne- nebulous, even though she now has advisors who are in ARC, like Macron, sort of top government people. She felt that the weight of France within the EU would have helped her, but I think it would have been very difficult. So. First of all, the situation would immediately not have looked good. People would have come out on the street demonstrating against her, le fascisme ne passera pas, fascism will not go through. You know, that, was, that would have been to be expected. And think of Trump derangement syndrome in America. Uh, you know, I don't, you don't need to make that one up and saying impossible. But uh, the other thing is that the French president has got many more powers than even the American president. We have almost no counterpowers. And so, the, uh, uh, the, for instance, the president in the Constitution is the one who decides a foreign policy and of uh, defense policy. And it's 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 tailor made for De Gaulle. But uh, you realize how you know no discussions in Parliament, nothing about you know should we go to war about this? Should we defend Ukraine? It's entirely decided at the Élysée. And if you have a Conseil de Défense, the Conseil de Défense is the Defence Council. It is there are no minutes because it's it's under secret Défense, the equivalent of a de-notice. So, it's uh, whatever it's called now, and so it's it's confidential. Uh, the num and when they discussed COVID policy, it was nominally a conseil de défense so that there were no minutes about what the discussions they had at the Elysee. It now turns out that they had them with McKinsey, the consultants, which is a bit scary. Uh, but it means that she has in her hands four more powers, and she would also find a sort of more opponents against her. So that was an explosive situation. and I think there are many people who felt reasonably angry at Emmanuel Macron and felt that it's, you know, she is not the woman to have the kind of Thatcher like fight against the establishment and win. So that was the the personal equation was very important in, in many ways.
0: So this is something that Eric Zemmour and other sort of right wing populists will probably be thinking about as they're looking to the next presidential election. But You mentioned. But also, Eric Zemmour would not run for president. Uh,
1: I mean, I don't think he would run for president again because I don't think. I think people liked some of the things he said, and there was something he was interesting because he was new and he's a lot more nimble than than she is. But the likelihood is that there's a Gaullist, a sort of Republican politician called Laurent Vauquier, who's the president of the Rhône-Alpes region, and the likelihood is that he will run. in in 27, with essentially a great chunk of Zimmel's program and this alliance of the rights. And he is perfectly believable.
0: Now you've mentioned Charles de Gaulle many times in this interview and he is really the shadow that looms over French politics and uh, you know everyone's recommended it but I would recommend it to readers. The book by Julian Jackson recently, A a Certain Idea of France, absolutely fantastic and goes into de Gaulle's history. Um, Now there are British commentators again who Lord Emmanuel Macron, he is this great leader of France, he is a great man of history, or he could become a great man of history. He is arrogant, he is controversial, just as Charles de Gaulle was all those years ago. And yet uh, uh, Macron, he could be a very similar president to de Gaulle. He could be this great man who could unite Europe, who could lead Europe, who could lead the EU. What do you say to this characterization from the British commentariat of Macron as the second Charles de Gaulle?
1: Well, to quote a famous uh, uh, Telegraph columnist, this is an inverted pyramid of piffle. Uh, it is, you know, no, he's not de Gaulle. Uh, he's just a very silly boy. Uh, <laughs> but no, he's not, first of all, because there's no uh, vision. De Gaulle had a very clear vision, and in that he resembled Margaret Thatcher in ways. He was stubborn, he had a sense of history, uh, he had written books very good books on, on the military and on history. I mean he happens to be also a good writer, not Emmanuel Macron's speeches. I mean De Gaulle's speeches were really something. And uh, and they are studied now as much for the language as for what they were what they, they laid out. He came at a time of history in which he incarned uh, uh, the French nation occupied by Germany, you know, and from over the water, but eventually which one? Uh, he uh, Presided. I mean, he is a man who was born. He was born in 1890, if I remember correctly. He presided over the changes of France in the immediate, uh, uh, immediate after war. There was a general mentality, but De Gaulle in '58 inherited uh, the, the, the 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 seeds of the French nuclear industry, the seeds of the French infrastructure uh, from people who knew, uh, who had been involved in the resistance. You had all those people who then were in the civil service and who saw the task of rebuilding France. Uh, before de Gaulle and with de Gaulle, as, as something that was a continuation of repairing what the war had wrought. There was a vision where he wanted to position France more as a leader of Europe. The EU was the marché commun, the common market at the time. It was not a political thing. But he wanted to position France uh, in, well, officially as equidistant from the Atlantic to the Urals, which meant including Russia in in, in France. But at the end of the day, when Push came to shove, he was firmly on the side of the West. And there's one instance which is really interesting, which is when at the time of the missile crisis in Cuba, when there were uh, uh, missiles with um, uh, nuclear warheads in Cuba, and they had been photographed from uh, U2 plane, American plane, uh, in 1962. Uh, the question is, what do we do in this, this nuclear war? This is the height of the Cold War, and the Russians are supposed to uh, be capable of using their nuclear weapons. It's, it's, uh, it's nuclear deterrence when you believe in the deterrence as opposed to today. And um, the American ambassador uh, in Paris, um, uh, Vernon Walters, spoke French like a Frenchman, went to see the general at the Elysee, and, and he had a yellow manila envelope. He told the story afterwards. He didn't tell me, but I've seen this on TV. And he went to see De Gaulle and he said, Mon Général, uh, uh, I have brought from uh, President Kennedy the pictures that were taken by our planes, which you as a general will. And De Gaulle stopped him and he said, non, non, la parole du General Du Président Kennedy me suffit, the word of the President of the United States is enough for me. And You know, he knew exactly what it was. And another example, not De Gaulle, but somebody who had known De Gaulle and opposed De Gaulle and ran against De Gaulle, Francois Mitterrand at the time of the Falklands. Uh, The Argentinians, who were not seen as a hostile power, had bought French missiles and French planes. And so a French super-étendard plane shot an Exocet, a French-made missile to HMS Sheffield, and sank it. And Mitterrand saw that realized that Britain was an allied, remembered the war, and he uh, uh, organized the quiet sort of uh, handing over to Margaret Thatcher of the, uh, the entire schematics of the missile so that Britain would know how to oppose it. Uh, uh, this is a sense of history, and it's a sense of, of uh, you know, going beyond quarrels, that de Gaulle, even though he could be incredibly ornery, and yes, he was arrogant at times, uh, but there was a depth to de Gaulle that Macron has no depth. Macron wanted to be an actor. Uh, he he thought his career would be in classi- as a classical actor and he's acting president right now in so many ways. That's nothing to do with Charles de Gaulle.
0: Now he married his drama teacher. Uh, it's uh, actually, it's, you know, it's a
1: real marriage and and, and she, did, this is going to surprise you, but she balances him. He would be much worse without her, but then he wouldn't be where he is now without her, I think. It's a bit like Hillary and Bill Clinton. <laughs>
0: So France has been in this chaotic situation arguably since the revolution and it's been through five republics it's had uh, you know uh, immense as particularly in the 20th century has been through massive changes uh, and disruptions and divisions. Just look at Vichy, France. look at the 1968 riots and both de Gaulle experienced both of these two uh, monumentous events. Historically, how do you view France's divisions? today? How would you compare, you know, how divided is France compared to uh, previously?
1: Well, I mean, I have to correct this and say that France is a country that went through a great deal of periods of incredible sort of calm, and prosperity. If you think about the Third Republic, which is born out of the ashes of the French Prussian War, we've been defeated. Napoleon III has gone away. Uh, uh, Alsace and Lorraine have been uh, sort of taken by the Germans, and France builds the Third Republic. And the Third Republic is actually the republic that sort of seals the Alliance Cordiale, the, um, the Entente Cordiale with uh, uh, Edward VII, and uh, it builds an, a country that has the Eiffel Tower. It builds a country that has uh, incredible sort of industrial successes, and it's a it's a very very prosperous country. It's a more prosperous country than Britain, I think. Uh, it's arguable. But we, bo- we also, like the British, we build a colonial empire. And you can think what you want about this. But certainly, it brings prosperity to the metropolis. And, and if you take uh, France in the, in the, in the 30s, it's, it's got unstable governments. And in the, in the 50s, it's got unstable governments the way Italy has got unstable governments. So then you've got those big chasms. One is the occupation and, and the betrayal of the government in place. And uh, you know the role of De Gaulle in bringing all of this down, and you've got and you've got May '68. May '68 is is a student riot, and then it's a civilizational civili- civili- thing. You have the equivalent of May '68 in America. You've got the student riots of '68. You've got much bloodier student riots in Germany because the Germans, when they do things, to do them seriously. You've got that the world over, and what you actually get is something that is. The Western world, with you know, sexual sort of liberation and a number of things in terms of civilization. and that's you can argue, and I know people on the right who will argue that it's the it's got the seeds of the destruction of the West.
0: The birth of woke ideals in French universities. Yes,
1: well, that's pretty recent, and we we got this from America, who had misread French uh, <laughs> French authors as they always do, but uh, and but. Um, that's, that's not a really serious crisis And in terms of political crisis. Now, uh, 1940 to 1944, that is a huge chasm, uh, because what was avoided by the armies of the French Revolution in 1792, which is that the Allies sort of converge on France and did not invade eventually, that they, in 1814 they came, but they went back again because they restored the king. But essentially, the big sort of, uh, sort of abyss. The French star, stare into the abyss during the occupation. They stare at themselves, thinking, how would I have behaved? How did we behave? Some people, uh, it's you know, the idea that the French uh, did not fight. Uh, there were 200,000 casualties uh, in the two months of May, June, 1940, at the time of the Blitzkrieg. So yes, the French fought, and they were defeated by the Germans, but they fought very hard. Um, and uh, it's you know, But still, it is a time when things are not in black and white. Uh, on the ground, and they are incredibly black and white in retrospect, and that is uh, that's something that the French discuss obsessively. They wouldn't talk about it under De Gaulle. De Gaulle said France was me. The state, you know, France was not uh, betrayed, uh, uh, and the people who are in power are not uh, legitimate. Which is a perfectly good way of saying things considering that they essentially sort of said, please invade and please sort of organize your things and please take our uh, workers and our Jews and, and our, most of the goods were produced. So you can say that. But the, the
0: So he had, to re- he had to create a myth of France after the war to try and justify or uh, in people's minds what the, you know, the, the, the history of occupation.
1: De Gaulle did that and and then it changed and then the the French looked back and they started sort of and the American historians good ones we there are good ones <laughs> they have everything in America uh, wrote about the, uh, the collaboration that people were not talking so much about they were joking about it which is very different and eventually you know the French came to a sort of re-examination of their past as other countries do. Uh, it took time. It was difficult. The French are Latins in that uh, we don't apologize. If you apologize in France, essentially you self-destruct. Uh, they, there's not like the the Protestants and the Anglo-Saxons where you own up to a mistake, and, and it's fine. In France, if you own up to a mistake, uh, essentially that means, OK, you're you're the full guy. Uh, and that's, that's a very different frame of mind. But still, I would say that if you talk about the trauma that we have now, it's. It's midway between those two considering that sixty-eight is not a very important trauma.
0: Can you describe a little bit more about the divisions currently in France? So, you know, you could talk a little bit about the Rust belt and the people who've been left behind. Same thing in Britain, same thing in America. And you can talk about the sort of more metropolitan, younger well, not necessarily younger people, but the more metropolitan people, the pensioners and things like that. Is that where the division is? Is it on a sort of class and age lines?
1: I think you're right, and it's class and age. Uh, what's very interesting is young people, if they had no uh, uh, university diplomas, they voted for Marine Le Pen. And the ones who have diplomas, but. Can't find jobs. They voted for Mélenchon, and from one. What's fascinating about Marie Le Pen, the Marine Le Pen vote, is how uh, the French West Indies, which are départements, so part of France administratively and in all everything, uh, they voted en masse for Mélenchon in the first round, and they voted en masse for Marine Le Pen in the second round, and they're black. And so the question is, you know. Why? And it's because the color is not so important to them. What's really important is that they feel that they're not treated well by the system and by the metropolis. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, because the, the, in those in the islands the, and, and Guyane, the attitude of, of the, uh, the French people there said, uh, our situation is socially not good, economically not good. We want, we want help. We want more. We're not given enough. And it's not decided by race, it's decided by the fact that the government is not paying attention to us. And Marine Le Pen campaigned in Guadeloupe and Martinique, and there were small demonstrations against her. And people said, you see, she's not received well there because, and well, they voted for her. And some, some, some one of the islands voted 71% for her. And that was. And so that tale, dovetails into, uh, what are the real French divisions? And yes, it is uh, like in Britain, like in America, the large cities, the coast in, in, in America, large cities, and and, and uh, not so much the countryside itself, because only 2% of the French are still farmers. But so small towns dotted all over France who no longer have a train station because it's too expensive to run for the traffic, no longer have public services. If they want to have, if they have babies, they've got to drive up, you know, 50 miles to go to a hospital. Uh, and if the company that's in that small town Uh, uh, sort of goes bankrupt, there are no jobs, you can't sell your home if you own it, because that's the end of it. And there's a geographer in France called Christophe Guillouy, and he theorized this. And he called that La France Peripherique, peripheral France, not because it's at the borders, but because it is peripheral to the concerns of the great metropolises um uh so that's that's huge and he i might add that christophe guilloui theorized this for he's theorizing this for almost 15 years and he was derided by the metropolitan elite that france's supposedly best ge- geographer and best sociologist um d- sorry best demographist, is a man called hervé Lebras, and he's weighed with honors at the university and he kept on sort of Dismissing people like Yui, and mis- dismissing people that there was an integration problem of immigration, and uh, sort of touting the, the the thesis of of more immigration is better for us, and uh, more globalization is better for us, and and the uh, sort of. Blindness, the willful blindness of somebody to sort of reconsider things that he probably held sort of you know in good faith to a point where he will sort of massage the facts in order to make that work. That really is embodies those elites who don't want to see it, and that's that's a big thing. So the you know those two social those two social things, and then you've got a history. Uh, take Brittany, uh, Brittany, and to a large extent Normandy, except for one département, they voted for Marine Le Pen. They voted socialist, or they voted on the left, and in the second round they voted for Macron. Uh, you have places in the south east; they are not so different from the southwest, but they voted en masse for Marine Le Pen. Uh, you've got particularities, and that's you know that remains. You've got places that vote in different ways, and that's that's more complicated. So it's it's divided in many ways by education, by access to jobs, by access to culture, uh, and you also have now ethnic uh, um, ethnic coalitions, but only. Uh, Forty percent, uh, for for instance, um, French Muslims uh, voted against. Declared that they voted against Marine Le Pen. They might not have voted for her, and uh, in the first round, you had some areas, specifically sort of very Muslim areas, where they voted for Mélenchon en masse. But that was also a protest vote. Um, So it's not as it's not as as sort of uh, hardline as you'd think it is. It's. uh, (laughs)
0: <laughs> Let's talk about Franco-British relations. Now, you are the French whisperer to British audiences. You explain <laughs> everything France to us and we consume it in heavy quantities and I want you to explain to viewers how the British view the French and how the French view the British.
1: Ah, uh, well, the first of all there's an imbalance and I, I'm absolutely sorry to say that they, the British seem to always sort of want to bash the French, and they're interested in France, and whether they think the food is wonderful, and the women are sexy, and the countryside is lovely to holiday in, and the politicians are awful, and Macron is arrogant. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very strongly held opinion. And, and it's not very difficult to make people think about it. And you know, it goes back to those that uh, front page of the Sun newspaper, where uh, uh, at the up time of the mastery, up yours Delors, you know, let's get Britons en masse to uh, <laughs> uh, Dover, and we could shout loud enough that they will hear us in, in, in Calais. And I don't think any of those Sun readers actually believed that they would be heard, but it was a nice, you know, it was, a fu- it was fun. It was a fun outing. And the French took this horribly seriously. And the thing is that when you when you look at the French, you look at the French even hostilely with a bit of a twinkle. Possibly not on Macron, but he's the first. Other than that, uh, the uh, you know I, there's another sort of. A, a, a colleague uh, communi- columnist uh, richard camp colonel richard camp uh, who writes for the telegraph and uh, he likes to bash the french when we meet and then of course he tells me about how the french and the british worked very well in afghanistan and they had deep respect for one another so that's the sort of love hate thing but the british enjoy it and uh, they think about france a lot which is why you need a a french whisperer. Uh, but, you know it's it's not it's because it's a country that will always get readers to sort of click on the, on the headlines on the website in, in, in France, it's entirely different, because we can go months without thinking of the British. And, and when we think of a British, for instance, we have Boris Johnson or Margaret Thatcher before Boris Johnson in terms of being people to hate. Not a twinkle. God, it was very personal. Mitterrand, who was a clever man, actually did have the twinkle. He's the man who famously said of Margaret Thatcher, she has the, uh, the, the eyes of Marilyn Monroe and the smile of Caligula, uh, which is you know it's it's amusing. You could see that he was having fun and he disagreed with her, but he certainly saw the point of Margaret Thatcher and, and he had a nice sense of politics. Jacques Chirac was more comparable to a Macron to Macron today, and he just disliked her. He called her you know he called her a damn housewife, and he said uh, uh, what does uh, at one stage they were they were discussing whatever treaty it was. I think it. Ended up as le traité de Fontainebleau, but don't quote me on this word. Um, and and he said, what does this this housewife want of me? My bollocks on a platter, literally. President of France, you can get away with saying such things in France, but still, uh, you know that meant that if he wanted to use uh, 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 sort of uh, the vocabulary he would have used when he was in the army, that's the sort of vocabulary he wanted to use. Uh, and the. Uh, it's, it's That's why you have this imbalance. There's less of a fascination. There is fascination for the Queen, but it's not something that people think of all the time. Uh, which is also, you know, physically, if you want to go on holiday abroad, unless you want to go to Brussels, essentially, you will go through France if, you don't, if you're not taking a plane. The French rarely holiday in Britain, they come to work in Britain. Uh, they like working in Britain because it's a country with a sense of possibility. And, and the ones who came to work in the city, because France uh, sort of makes you know, we produce good mathematicians. And, and they brought expertise for all those, those derivatives in the city. Uh, you know, there were, there were headhunters looking for French mathematicians to work for banks in the city. And many of them have left because they like the city. They like London. They think it's a, it's a nice place to live. They, they, they got used to it. But the rest of the French, you know, the, uh, the people who are not looking for a first job and the people who do not have the many of the people who came uh, to um, uh, West Kensington. Uh, they don't think about Britain most of the time.
0: Let's talk about the political relationship between Britain and France. Now, you mentioned uh, previously the Entente Cordiale. Now, this is the 1904 alliance that led to basically the alliance in World War One. And Boris Johnson is desperate to replicate this alliance after five years of a tumultuous relationship with Emmanuel Macron. After the Brexit vote, we've had, you know, terrible, terrible relations with France. And Boris is very hopeful that this can be corrected in Emmanuel Macron's second term. Have we got any chances of there being a second Entente Cordiale?
1: I don't think so. I think it's got to do with a French attitude to Brexit and to Boris Johnson himself. I think Boris Johnson is actually a very intelligent person and he probably knows that it's not going to be feasible because he's got the brain. But. Why not offer it and see if they sort of you know with the French repel uh, the the extended hand? Uh, and why shouldn't he do that? Because I think if you know surprise the French will do it, he'd be very happy. It would be one less problem to deal with. Um, the French uh, ambassador to Britain, former ambassador to Britain, Sylvie Berman, who is one of France's sort of, you know, big beasts of the Foreign Service she was ambassador in Beijing she speaks Chinese she was French ambassador in Moscow she speaks Russian and then, then she got Britain as a sort of you know good prestige post and she wrote a book after that and the book is called goodbye Britannia en français and she essentially betrayed the fact that she only met Pete remainers uh, when she invited Boris Johnson who was mayor of London and people who are rackxoeteers in the book I mean she has this caricature of caricature of levelling argument of, uh, you know, they, they're, they're unrealistic, they're stupid, they're lying. Uh, how can they do that? And she was the woman who was writing all those dispatches to the government of the time, who wasn't Emmanuel Macron, some of it was for Francois Hollande. Uh, and you start thinking there's a willful sort of blindness, which is an elitist blindness. And I respect Sylvie Berman, I think she's a good ambassador mostly, but she got Britain wrong. Um and i can't I still do not understand the the book I mean I read the book. I was fascinated by the book because that's absolutely not what I expected from a French ambassador, and especially from that French ambassador. I met her when she was in Russia. She is hugely impressive and and there was this sort of uh, epidemic relationship as if because France wants to define itself as the leading power of Europe, a founding nation of Europe. There was there's something that's been sort of integrated within the psyche of the French, which is if you attack Europe, you are attacking France. But it's not expressed overtly. It's it's something that's this is not the way to think. You can't think like that. Um, and and I would say that you know if you're a diplomat in a foreign country. The way that you the fact that you disagree with what they're going to do, and in many ways, um, I see why people voted for Brexit, but I think in terms of achieving something in Brussels, you, it was a known goal, mostly because I had French hard for years French diplomats in Brussels complaining that the British diplomats in Brussels were excellent at the EU and that they had learned so many tricks that they were running circles around them. And I was thinking, what a waste, you know, you, you could have done what we French do and, and gotten a better deal. Uh, but uh, so you can think that, which is certainly what uh, Ambassador Berman was thinking. But it's it's your job to, to to explain to your government, OK, they're not going that way because of that. And to give you another example, uh, a French MP was in charge of a, a House, uh, the Commission of Inquiry on Brexit the year, before, uh, uh, the year just before the vote, so 2015-16. And he goes to Britain, and he me- tries to meet people, and the only person he ends up meeting apart from a, a of a few remainers is uh, Gina Miller and you say, i said He's, she's not even an MP. We, we talked about this and, and he said, "Well, but you know she's extremely sympathic and yes, but that's not what you were sent out. He didn't meet a single person who would explain why they, they, they were in favor of brexit, why they were campaigning for brexit, and you think the fact that you're unable to conceptualize the fact that half of that country is going to vote in that direction, uh, that's a French failing, I would say.
0: So we're really talking on two different frequencies here, I yes. think. I want you, for the final question, to get out your crystal ball and <laughs> to give us some predictions for the next five years of Emmanuel Macron's presidency. What can we look forward to? And then in 2027, 20 you can come back and we can discuss what you got right and what you got wrong.
1: It's a date. <laughs> The OK, the, Emmanuel Macron himself knows that his second presidency, his second term, is going to be difficult because many people voted not for him but against Marine Le Pen. And he. I don't think he's going to have a honeymoon. Uh, I think he knows that he's not going to have a honeymoon because he had the weirdest uh, post-election victory party on, on Sunday night that you can think of. It was quiet. Uh, there were not many people there. He gave a 15-minute speech, which for him is very, very short. Uh, and the speech was uncharacteristically humble. Uh, yes, I hear you when people, I, I understand that people voted for Madame Le Pen. And people started booing, as you know, you do when you've won. And there's the other guy. And he said, no, no, I said you should never boo people. And he was really desperately trying to sort of uh, uh, conciliate uh, other voters. And the thing is, it was interesting, but. I couldn't help thinking that, you know, here is an actor doing sort of, yeah, this is the new part, I I have to, he writes his lines, let's give him credit, he writes his lines, but this is the new part. Uh, And the idea was, I need... First of all, I need, you know, uh, an amount of goodwill, and I'm not sure I'm going to get it. And second, he's got legislative elections to the house, which are in June, which is, I don't know why it's so late. I think it's got to do with so many holidays uh, uh, in between and bank holidays in France that it's 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 it's, it's happening in June. So it's 50, 50, 40, and 50 days after the um, uh, the presidential election, which means that people are going to have an occasion to see what his first decisions are. So his first decisions are entirely going to be taken with a view to the legislative elections, his Trump prime minister is going to be taken with a view to the legislative. And depending on what happens at the legislative, then you know he will redouble in the same direction or do something else. And my crystal ball is pretty murky at this stage because my first feeling was that he would have what the Americans uh, uh, call coattails. He would have no coattails, and that his victory in the House is uh, his victory in the presidential election and such a decisive victory do does not necessarily mean that he will have a majority in the house. Uh, many French experts say the reflex is still to vote for the guy you voted for in, in the first time. in some ways it's you know you the second vote is happening so soon. Uh, after the first one, there's a reaction of, you know, yeah, we voted for this guy the first time, now get on with it. You know, if you ask people to re vote on something, they usually vote for the same thing just because they're annoyed of being asked a second time. Uh, I don't know. I do not know. I don't know how he can organize himself. I don't know how many people he can poach from the Republicans and from the socialists. And of course, the fact that he has weakened them tremendously because they were divided, but they could have rebuilt themselves, that means that. Suppose he takes Valérie Pécresse as a prime minister. Um, She might not be prime minister afterwards. Uh, His former PM, Edouard Philippe, who he fired midway through the COVID crisis, uh, has a party which is officially a Macron-compatible, quasi-republican party. So possibly he would take Edouard Philippe, who's very popular. He's very popular because he left. If he comes back into politics, I'm not sure he would be popular. That's a complicated thing in politics. I mean, it gets very arcane and very inside baseball. But I'm not sure he has coattails. And uh, I respect the people who tell me he has coattails. So my crystal ball is very milky, but Uh, After the vote, the June vote, then we know exactly what Macron is. I'll come back in 2017, but invite me uh, at the end of June, and then I will have, I think, a very clear notion of what Macron wants. If he's confirmed, he will be the same Macron you had the first time. If he's not confirmed, or if he's got a coalition with parties that for once will Play their part as parties rather than just follow him blindly, and and he chose politicians in his cabinets who were docile and never opposed him. He elected what we call in France the chevre. Essentially, his MPs are goats; they have no personality, and they, if they try to sort of uh, 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 express a different uh, angle or a different view, they essentially you know get out of the party soon after because they are told go away. They have a large enough majority, right? They had a large enough majority until now that they could do that. And so it's not good if you've got no position. The thing about the Tory party, for instance, is uh, certainly Emmanuel. Uh, the Boris Johnson has got a position both from the right of the party and from the left of the party. And he's got big beasts who are in a position to him. And he's got principled a position. People like Tugendhat, very principled. And all of this makes for an interesting party. And, and in, in Labour, they have a position that is tied to actual ideology. And you, you may disagree, but at least it's something that's perfectly understandable. But nothing of that exists in En Marche, which is a sort of amorph mass of people who decidedly vote for Macron. Does he have that kind of party again when the dust settles? I have no idea. So up in the air, I'll come back in June.
0: We have a very murky crystal ball then. Thank you so much, anne Elizabeth Moutet for joining us and for lending me your voice for an hour. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.